The passages I want to look at today is quite lengthy. It's what we call the Sermon on the Mount, found in uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So I, I, oh, by the way, that's, that's right up there, right below John 17 in my book. And, you know, it, it's, really, it's really weird the way the Lord, it's neat, weird in a neat way. How he wires this all different. What one person will think really talks to them. The other person would say, yeah, yeah, yeah but, you know, I prefer this. But, you know, we, we can always fall back on, on the fact that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable, right? Amen. So, anyway, with that said, I, 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 I would encourage you guys to turn to Matthew 5. And we're going to do, um, you know, you've heard this saying, uh, a bird's eye view opposed to a worm's eye view. Uh, this is going to be like uh, a bird's eye view on steroids, like we're looking at it from the space shuttle. I'm just going to barely hit on, on these uh, different issues, but it's important for you to be able to follow along to, as, as I'm talking our way through this, running our way through it, that you can... Uh, you know, that you can follow along and see the point that I'm trying to make. And I say all of this because of my lack of experience. Hopefully these qualifications will help us here. Anyway, with all that said, I need a drink already. <laughs> Ask Frida, I'm not used to talking a lot. <clears throat> Quite some time ago, I was asked to pray about possibly becoming an elder here at, at RHC. My immediate response was, you know, I don't have to pray about it because I don't aspire to the office, which was true. You know, according to uh, 1 Timothy 3.1, if I don't aspire, if anyone doesn't aspire to the office, well, he doesn't meet the qualifications, right? What I didn't reveal was the reason for not desiring to serve God at this level. You see, I had been an elder uh, at a past church. The reason I said no was that I didn't want the responsibility of keeping watch over others' souls. <clears throat> Hebrews 13, 17 states that elders will give an account on how they perform this task. Now, at the time, at the time, I thought that verse was saying that somehow elders were somewhat responsible for the salvation of the individuals they were leading. I was wrong. After much prayer and study, the Lord convinced me that the elder's job is to know, understand, and effectively teach Scripture. Titus 1, 9 bears that out. But still yet, even with all that said, we know that not all who call out, Lord, Lord, will be saved. We know that there's, there's tares amongst the wheat and there are wolves grazing with the sheep. I can say this from experience, and I speak for all elders, that this is a heavy, heavy load to bear. Knowing... <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm already getting emotional. Yeah. Knowing that there are those people who sit in church, you know, week after week, year after year, they hear God's word, you know, 
They get baptized. They join this church. They're, they're serving in various ministries. They're taking communion. And still yet, they're lost. This is absolutely devastating to me. But hold on. It gets worse. The worst part of it all is that these people think they're in. They're not. They're out. They think they're saved. They're lost. They think they will spend eternity in heaven. But Jesus will say to them, the most shocking words found in all of Scripture, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's a startling reality check. Imagine, if you can, living your whole life with the most admirable objective as your goal, thinking you've achieved it, only to find out that you've been living a lie. You've been self-deceived. You're beginning to, to understand why I was hesitant in accepting this eldership. <clears throat> Do you see the importance of getting the matter right? Or more importantly, you see the, <clears throat> the consequences of getting it wrong? Hopefully you do. It's my desire that you do. All that aside, most importantly, it's the Father's desire that you do. In fact, he provided us with tests. Tests that when, when taken will reveal to us whether we're actually saved. Who in here is uh, actually, and, and I do want to see hands. I know this is out of the norm, but uh, who in here has actually read through the Sermon on the Mount? Okay, great. Who's actually studied through it? Better yet, okay. So I know I'm, I'm, I'm talking to learned people here. I'm going to ask one more question, which ain't even in my notes, but I, I, it just occurred to me when Phil was introduced to our, our monthly liturgy readings, this month's, this month's theme is uh, uh, evangelism. Has anyone ever thought about the Sermon on the Mount being a passage you would turn to as an evangelistic tool? Back to my notes. Test when honestly taking will give the results, revealing to us whether or not we've been truly adopted into God's forever family. Now at this point, I must stress the fact that according to Scripture, it is possible to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can have full assurance of salvation. For example... Pastor Phil's going to be in John chapter 10 in just a few weeks. I'm not going to let anything out of the bag here, but just hit some highlights. In chapter 10 of John, Jesus claims his deity and identifies himself as the door to the sheepfold. In verse 9, he says, If anyone enters through me, he shall, he shall be saved. And therein lies the key to true salvation. You must enter through Jesus not through your own works of righteousness. Jesus goes on in verse 18 and establishes his authority as coming from God the Father. <clears throat> and, then, and then in verses 28 through 29, he proclaims that his followers can trust 
in their eternal security because whoever is held in Christ's hand is also held in the Father's hands, and there ain't nobody could ever, ever be ripped out of those hands, okay? That, that is as rock solid as you can get. Or we could look at Philippians 1, 6, he, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Or how about that monumental passage from Romans 8? If God is for us, who is against us? Or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The questions are so obvious that they answer themselves, right? Or how about this? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor, nor any created things, that pretty much covers it, right? Shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So yes, absolute assurance of salvation is obtainable. It can be had. I'm not saying that it can't, all right? And the surest way to obtain it is by taking and passing one of several spiritual tests which are found in Scripture. I've been talking a lot about tests. Well, actually, I, I had hoarded them when I was in school. I was terrible at them. I cheated a lot. That's how I passed tests. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. Shouldn't have went here. It's pretty funny until uh, you get to be an adult and realize you didn't learn nothing and you're doing manual labor all your life. Not that that's bad, but I wish I would have been more diligent in learning. Back on, back on track here. Tests are a good thing. Their purpose is to show us where we stand on any given subject. When we pass a test, it gives us assurance that we genuinely know the subject. On the other hand, when we fail a test, it should motivate us to get it right, to go back, see where we missed the point, and correct it. Now, personally, I am surrounded at my house with teachers. My wife, both of my sons, and a daughter-in-law are all teachers. <clears throat> and one thing I've learned from them is that very rarely is a teacher surprised uh, by the outcome of a test. A good teacher, and I know my wife is this, knows the student and knows whether or not that student is getting it because a good teacher observes the fruit that that student is producing. My analogy obviously breaks down at this point because an earthly teacher cannot see into the heart of his or her student. Whereas Jesus, being the ultimate heavenly teacher, can. Matthew 23, 8. Now this teacher, this Jesus, knows with certainty where the student is, even if that student doesn't. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. But our focus here is not on the teacher, it's on the student. This spiritual test is for our good. It will either affirm to us that we are truly saved or reveal to us that we've been self-deceived.
2 Corinthians 13.5 says, this is Paul at the tail end of his second letter to the church at Corinth after he's told them a lot of stuff that they were doing wrong. That's to put it mildly, right? He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. He's talking to a church here, people. At the end of this letter, again, he commands those in the church to test themselves, to see for themselves if they were in the faith. He literally tells them to examine themselves. Why would Paul tell a church to examine itself? You know, you would think he'd be out there on McHenry, right? He knew that a born-again believer would cease to practice unrighteousness. He had eyes to see and ears to hear. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he's talking to them. But what he learned was that some were practicing unrighteousness on an epic scale. Do you not know that the unrighteousness, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Paul recognized that this church was heavily, heavily populated with unbelievers. People, again, who had made a profession of faith, they had joined the church. And they were even active in it, things we would call good, right? Now, the reflex action, the reflex response, especially for me, is to say, well, yeah, I see why they were all screwed up, right? No way would I ever stoop to such a level. But in reality, the very reason that this world, the world is in such a depraved state is that the churches are heavily populated today with unbelievers. That's convicting to me. So how do we clean it up? How do we test ourselves? By honestly evaluating how our life lines up with the criteria set forth in Scripture. And what is the criteria? It's righteousness. And what is righteousness? It simply means doing what's right. And where did we find this test of righteousness in Scripture? Well, there's a bunch of places. Go to look at two of them real quickly. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. In verse 10, Peter said, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. Now, in the preceding verses, Peter gave a list of eight characteristics revealing the presence of righteousness in a true follower of Christ. And if these qualities are present in your life, the results will be, verse 11, entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or how about this? The whole epistle of 1 John is simply a checklist to evaluate our 
true spiritual standing before God. For example, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we, don't practice, and we do not practice the truth. 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Or verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Or how about chapter 2, verse 29? If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. But the most comprehensive spiritual test in all of Scripture is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays out the criteria in which to evaluate yourself by. And here, here is the standard. The key to the standard is righteousness. Matthew 5, verse 20. For I say unto you, this is our Lord and Savior talking, by the way. For I say unto you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't see a need to replow the ground that Pastor Phil has um, cultivated for us in his exposition of the book of John. And through his preaching of the word, the Spirit has clearly revealed to us how totally wrong the scribes and Pharisees were in pursuit of salvation. Not only were they wrong in their works-oriented system, but worse yet, they were leading others astray. They had mastered the letter of the law at the expense of the intent of the law. Jesus often quoted Hosea 6.6 while he was rebuking the, the, the Pharisees and their teaching, which reads, I desire compassion, not sacrifices. And as a result of this Pharisaical theology, soteriology had been reduced to a mere human accomplishment. They had bypassed God himself on their journey to glory. In reality, they had no need for a savior because in their minds, they were not sinners. And in the rare case, if they happened to sin, they could just tithe a little more and void or nullify that particular sin. Their whole system was based on works and focused on the exterior. They had neglected the heart, the intent, the meaning of the law. And when Jesus stepped onto the scene, he immediately, he immediately set the record straight. You guys ever notice where the Sermon on the Mount is in Scripture? It's front-loaded, right at the front of the New Testament. His earthly appearance and what's he lead out with? His first uh, exhaustive uh, discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's my opinion that a lot of doctrinal truths flow downstream from that sermon, especially those found in the epistles. I forgot where I was now. Um, when Jesus stepped onto the scene, he immediately set out to set the record straight. And he figuratively rolled up his sleeves and addressed the issue head on. It was like priority number one for him. And think about it. How could he address the issues until he set, the, set straight the issue of how 
of how God uh, is in complete control. He, in other words, that he's sovereign over man, and, and in particular on the issue of salvation. The issue was authority and who had it, man or God. According to the teaching of the time, man had it because man could atone for his sins through his sacrifices. He could literally manufacture a self-righteousness by his obedience to the law. Paul would later get it. In Galatians 2, 15 and 16, Paul writes, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from amongst the Gentiles. Can you not hear the cultural arrogance in that? But he continues, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, I'd love to tell you that Jesus solved this theological problem and that since that time and since the time of his physical departure, that all of mankind has faithfully held to his teaching. I'd love to, but I can't. For mankind has continued to miss the point. We continue to walk the broad road where worldly works produce a counterfeit righteousness that leads to us being eternally lost. Pretty good for an introduction, I guess, time-wise. The Sermon on the Mount is universally acknowledged as the greatest sermon ever spoken, and for good reason when you consider who preached it, right? I told you guys to turn there. I think it's wise if I do. Jesus begins the Beatitudes by outlining who is accepted into his kingdom. They are those who are poor in spirit, verse 3, who are broken and admit they can do nothing to remedy their condition. They see themselves as sinners and it causes them to mourn, 4. They mourn themselves into a state of meekness, 5. And at reaching this painful conclusion, they begin to thirst after righteousness. Listen, if you, didn't, if you didn't come to Jesus mournful over your sins, and if you don't thirst for righteousness, there's a good chance that you're not a Christian. That's the standard set down, not by me, by God. Bare minimum. A true follower of, him, of his will find himself being merciful, verse 7. He'll suddenly have a pure heart, 8. He'll become a peacemaker, 9. He'll be perse persecuted for living a righteous life, 10. And he'll be persecuted for publicly standing up for Jesus, 11. Then Jesus says, be glad, be glad, because your persecution is proof that you're a kingdom citizen. And all of this is in his introduction, what we call the Beatitudes. 
And so the first part of this spiritual test is, did you come in mourning over your sin? Did you seek out a righteousness that is totally foreign to you? If you did, your life will be different. Look at verses 13 to 16. You'll have a new testimony that reflects Christ's righteousness. You'll be salt and light to a broken world. Have you checked your testimony? Has it changed? Are you set apart from the rest of society? Are you fit right in? He goes on, verses 17 through 19, and identifies a characteristic that's common in all of his followers, obedience. Do you strive and long to obey God's law? And when you stumble, as we all do, do you mourn and grieve like Paul did in John chapter 7? Then in verse 20 of chapter 5, Jesus gives a warning. It's actually the thematic, thematic verse of the whole sermon. For I say unto you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter into the kingdom of God. How can anyone exceed their righteousness, right? They were the most religious people who ever lived, right? On the outside, they appeared to be righteous, but Jesus saw right through that facade. On the inside, they were completely void of any saving righteousness. And if you really want to see how Jesus felt about the scribes and Pharisees, I would encourage you to visit Matthew chapter 23. Don't have time to go down that trail. But the righteousness that Jesus is speaking of is found back in the Beatitudes, in particular verses 6 and 10. It's a righteousness that only the converted possess. Hence the need for the warning. The Pharisees, the religious leaders that the whole nation looked up to were themselves lost evidenced by their lack of true righteousness. Whereas a Christian man is a man who lives out the Beatitudes. He is poor in spirit. He's meek. He's merciful. He hungers and thirsts after righteousness. In a word, he just longs to be like Christ. That's the righteousness test by which we must judge ourselves. He goes on, Jesus being he, goes on and gives examples of what a righteous life looks like. In verses 21 and 22, he, ad- he addresses personal, personal relationships. Now, the Jews had been taught that as long as you didn't kill a man with whom you disagreed, that you were okay, right? But Jesus said, no, <laughs> you shouldn't even harbor anger towards that person. And then in verses 23 through 26, he again stresses the point of being a peacemaker. Again, these personal relationship issues, right? Evidence of a changed life. And then in verses 27 through 30, he addresses fleshly lust. The Jews had been taught that as long as one stopped short of inappropriate sex, that they were living up to God's standard. Jesus sets them straight. 
He told them that God's standard is one in which you shouldn't even think that thought. And he uses hyperbole to make his point. He said, pluck out your eye. Chop off your hand if you can't control yourself. Just trying to stress how, how important it was. He's, I guess in a word he's saying the desire is just as, as damnable as the deed. And he goes on. In verses 33 through 30, there I go again, get emotional. 33 through 37, and says that a follower of mine will experience a change in the way he talks. His yes will be, mean yes, and his no will mean no. And his speech will reveal what lies within his heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Yeah, thank you, Jill. How about your speech pattern? Is that uplifting? Or does it tear down? Thirty-eight to forty-two. How do you act towards others when they've belittled or insulted you? God, this is tough for me, man. Do you demand retru- retribution? You know, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Or better yet, verses thirty-three through forty-eight. Are you selective in who you choose to associate with? If you are, I remind you that you are elevating yourself to a point of arrogance and becoming self-centered. And Jesus says that his followers treat all as equals. That's the point he makes in verse 48. Treat all as equals just as God does in verse 45. And he's talking about there is common grace. Do you see the point he's making? He's saying, if you're a Christian, then prove it. Prove that there's some evidence of a changed life. Something beyond a decision you made in the past. In other words, what's your life look like today? Are you banking on the assurance that some pastor or elder gave you after praying the sinner's prayer some time ago? If you are, I must warn you that this man had no business telling you that. No business at all. That's the Holy Spirit's work. Listen to Romans 8, verses 10 and 11. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit, little less, is alive because of righteousness. But, here's verse 11. But if the Spirit, capital S, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give to your mortal mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. I think I left out that most important word. Uh, Will also give life to your mortal bodies. Sorry about that. You see, the Holy Spirit gives assurance through an inner testimony, and by the evidence of outer works. That's where the works fit in. And you can find evidence of that statement to back that statement up in James 2, verses 17 and 18. Jesus goes on in chapter 6 and says, If you're truly one of mine, your worship will be genuine, not phony like the hypocrites. Your giving, your prayer, your fasting will be intimate. 
just between you and him. Not as a public display that you parade to prove your piety. He says that my followers will have the right perspective on money, uh, verses 19 to 34, and material things. They don't hoard stuff and use the argument of security to defend their position. No, his followers find their security in him, and they prove it by trusting in him to meet all their needs. And so, if you have a right, right relationship to money and material things, you should also have a, a right relationship, right relation to people. You don't run around misjudging them, especially when you have problems of your own. You know, you got this big log sticking out of your eye and you're raking your neighbor over the coals for a speck of sawdust. And so if you have a right relationship to, with money and material things, you should also have a right, right relationship with people. I just said that. I'm sorry. Scratch that. So Jesus gives an essential gives us the essential elements required for entry into his kingdom. He says, if you're truly mine, you come broken over your sinfulness, realizing that in and of yourself, there's nothing you can do to remedy your situation. You call out to the only one who has the power to rescue you. He hears you. He gives you a new heart, and you're different. And here's the evidence. If you're really a Christian, you hunger for righteousness. And this hunger causes you to have a new testimony. You're a light that can't be hidden. Your life is now characterized by obedience. And that results in right thinking, right talking, right acting, right kind of worship, and the right kind of relationships. Notice how Jesus begins to close his sermon. To affirm the point he's been making, he gives an illustration representing two vital points. Number one, the entryway into heaven. And number two, those who are blessed enough to find it. Pay close attention to what's being said in verses 13 and 14. Jesus claims, listen up here. Jesus claims that most professing believers are bound for hell. That should grab our attention. You won't hear that from many pulpits today. And the reason why the majority are hell-bound is that they choose the easy way. They choose to follow a Jesus that doesn't require a total life transformation. The kind of Jesus that the rich young ruler was, was eager to follow in Matthew 19. The kind of Jesus that a lot of preachers are, are selling us today. We're warned about these false prophets in verses 15 through 20. We're also informed on how to identify them by the fruits. Look, if someone is telling you that you can have your best life now, or that the reason you have not is because you give not, or that theology really ain't that important, I say to you, shake the dust off your feet and run as fast as you can. And the reason I say that is because their fruit is straight out of hell. And those who've bought into their easy believism are identified for us in verse 21. 
And that's shocking. The shocking thing about verse 21 is that a lot of professing Christians will be denied entry into heaven. You look there in verse 22 and you'll see that they even argue their case. Mind you, toe-to-toe, face-to-face with God, and they're arguing. Hey, we believed. We called you Lord. Hey, we were even active in church. We told others about you. We confronted the social injustices that the demons propagated. We even had successes in our ministries. Then Jesus will pull the rug out from under them and their whole theological castle will come crashing down. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The real irony is that these people are convinced that they are on the narrow road when in reality they're on the broad road headed for destruction. And who knows how it came about Maybe they were basing their assurance on a decision they made long ago. Or maybe they bought into what the wolves were selling. You know, a kind of Jesus doesn't require a total commitment. The kind that allows you to go on living as if nothing's changed. You know, kind of like like an insurance policy, just keep you out of hell. Jesus gets very personal on the application side of his sermon. Every person who claims to be a Christian, including you and me, are identified in verses 24 through 27. Either you, either I. I am one of those who has assurance built upon the rock, evidenced by a righteousness totally outside of myself or as one who has built his assurance on the sand evidenced by a self-manufactured righteousness. And so hence the need for this examination. The consequences are just too great to neglect. And I realize that I may have offended somebody here today. But still yet, I call on you to examine yourself and to see if your testimony lines up with the facts of your life. I get it. I get it. Believe me. Me too. Me too. Still yet, even though I know that I know that I know that I know I'm saved, I can't help So think about them people in verse 21. How arrogant it would be of me to explain them away as just being lazy or weak or just self-deceived. Remember, these people were not lining up to go to hell. They were on a road which they thought led to heaven. Quote from John Bunyan, very fitting here concerning this passage. 
John Bunyan says, some will find out there's an interest to hell from the portals of heaven. Worse yet, some of us might take it personally as an affront to our faith. I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. Personally, I find great comfort in the fact that John John the Baptist, the very man of which Jesus said, among those born of woman, there is not risen anyone greater. This same man had gotten to a point where his faith was wavering, and he asked, are you the expected one? Or should we look for someone else? I guess what I'm trying to say, you know, don't get in a huff, man. It's good enough for John to examine himself. Boy, I can only tell you that a true follower of Jesus Christ will not shy away from an honest, thorough self-examination. And why do I say that? Because he's a new creature. He's been washed with the blood of Christ, and he possesses... Christ's righteousness. I was just going to give you some addresses to prove that statement I just said. I've got time, I'm going to read them. It's just five verses. Taken from Romans chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. For if by the transgression of the one, and here um, Paul's comparing Adam and Jesus, okay? First Adam, second Adam. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, one act of righteousness there shall there, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous." And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, that as sin reigned in the church, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I honestly don't know how it could get any plainer than that. Conclusion, Jesus is just simply telling us to examine ourselves whether it be here in the Sermon on the Mount or in 1 John or Galatians 6, 4, Matthew 26, 22, Philippians 2, 12, 2 Peter 1, 10, or 2 Corinthians 3, 5. You get the picture. It's not an isolated point. And remember, he already knows those who are his. This test is for our good, right? It's for our good and his glory. I just want to leave you with this one thought. Someday we'll all stand before our maker and we'll hear one of two things. Well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me, 
because I never knew you.